The Roman Catholic Forum is very pleased to present our next speaker, Father Joseph Greenwell. Father Greenwell is no stranger to most of you. However, to those of you who may not have had the opportunity of meeting Father Greenwell while you were here, Father Greenwell is a native of Kentucky. And interestingly enough, he attended public schools. As he will tell you, there were no Catholic schools in his area while he was growing up. Father Greenwell entered the St. Thomas Aquinas Seminary in Ridgefield, Connecticut, where he studied from 1979 until 1983. He then moved to Cincinnati, where he taught at St. Gertrude's Academy, and then for one year studied, continued his seminary studies in Warren, Michigan. And in 1990, very happily, was ordained to the priesthood. Father's busy schedule, actually it's an all-consuming schedule, is divided mostly between the chapel in Cincinnati and in Cleveland. To discuss today the Council of Baltimore and the Catechism, we are very pleased to present to you Father Joseph Greenwell. Thank you very much. I would like to thank all of you for coming uh, to the Roman Catholic Forum. Uh, I've been asked to make an announcement before I begin uh, for the sale of the Father Lassant's Roman Missal. This missal is on sale, uh, or will be on sale. Mr. Vern Bomberger is in the back and taking orders for it now. Uh, while the forum lasts, you will be able to purchase this new it's, an, it's the Pius X liturgy. You'll be able to purchase this missile for $25. After the form, it will be $30. And there are also some beautiful cards, which, father, which one of the priests, I believe, had reprinted uh, of the Sacred Heart of Our Lord Jesus Christ. It goes hand-in-hand hand with Father Bomberger's talk the other night. In the study of education in the Council of Baltimore, I think it is proper, and not only proper, but first to understand what we mean by the term education. In the broad sense of the term, education includes all of those experiences by which intelligence is developed, knowledge acquired, and character formed. In the narrower sense, it is work done by certain agencies and institutions, the home and the school, for the express purpose of training immature minds filling them with information, forming them, informing them. The child, as you well know, is born with latent capacities which must be developed to fit him for the activities and duties of life to fit him for manhood. Education aims at an ideal, and this in turn depends on the view that is taken of man in his destiny, in his relationship to Almighty God, to his fellow men into the physical world. The content of education is furnished by previous acquisitions of mankind's history in literature, in art, in science, in moral, social, and religious principles. I'm explicitating on all of these because all of these are very important, moral, social, and religious. Today there is a tremendous uh, habit of divorcing and separating the moral and religious from other forms of knowledge. The work of education begins where? It begins in the home. It is for obvious reasons that 
institutions have been constituted where the teacher stands in the place of the parents. Since school, the school moreover, is largely responsible for the intellectual and moral formation of those who will later be members of society and be useful or harmful to society. There is evidently a need of a higher direction than just the teacher. We have many teachers in our audience today. I'm very happy to see them. We have some who will begin their teaching career this summer also in our audience. The teacher, though, has to be guided also. And if the purpose of education may be realized, both the church and state have interests to safeguard. Each in its own sphere must exercise its authority if education is to strive for the true ideal and the best content and the soundest methods. As you well know, as Catholics and as people of action, mere knowledge of principles the mere knowledge is worthless unless they are joined to action. We've heard gentlemen last night, Mr. Mullen, others speak on being actionaries, in other words, reacting to the problems of today. The mere recital of facts and of fundamental principles are of little avail unless they are able to be put into execution. The principle of life is God, and thus not only religion must be acknowledged, but it must also be given its prominence in education. Let us discuss shortly the philosophy of Oriental and Eastern education. Education has always been the mainstay of civilization. It predates Christianity, some of the oldest forms, the Oriental, the Eastern, and Hebraic civilizations. In the Oriental education, the invention of writing was of the utmost importance for the development of language and the keeping of records. The earliest texts of the Chinese were chiefly of a religious nature because religion was the source of knowledge and the means of education to the Chinese people. Such were in China the writings of Confucius, in India, the Vedas, in Egypt the Book of the Dead, in Persia the Avesta. The main purpose in having these books studied by you was to secure uniformity in thought, in custom, and unvarying conformity with the past. Prudent people realize, realize that history is a great teacher. If you do not look upon history and learn from it, you are doomed to repeat it for good or for bad, whatever the case may be. In this respect, Christian education, or Chinese education, excuse me, is typical. The sacred writings contain the minute prescriptions for conduct in every circumstance and station of life. The earliest Chinese education was not Christian, but it did have a certain amount of nobility and natural ideals to it. In Greek society, it becomes a little more interesting. There's a more progressive manner, a utopian sort of attitude on education. The Greeks stress more the physical level to their education. In the Code of Lycurgus, the law of the city of Sparta, much like that of Hitler's empire and that of the communists, the child was considered mere property of the state. 
If the child was unfit for the state, he was destroyed. At the age of seven, the child was removed from his parents, taken by the state, and trained. The primary goal of the Greeks was to train to raise the boy to be the ultimate fighting war machine. Girls also were trained. Keep in mind that these early pagan societies considered women and girls as chattel, cattle. They considered them not much more than animals. It was Christianity which raised them to the true dignity to which they belong. The training of the boy to the Greek was mostly physical, as mentioned before. Their schoolroom was the gym, tuning the physical skills rather than the mental skills. Girls were also trained, somewhat reluctantly, but they were trained to raise warrior children. We see great parallels today in our public schools, and even more so in society, where educational tools are sports equipment rather than the book and the pencil. In our universities, where the student is valued more for his skill with the pigskin than with the matters of God or the state, where vice, apathy, despondency, under the titles of toleration, of charity, are inculcated rather than the noble ideals of virtue. The Greeks did stress courage and toleration and obedience to the laws. The essential weakness of their moral education was their failure to provide adequate sanction for the principles which they formulated in the youth. The practice of religion, whether in public services or in household worship, exerted very little influence upon the formation of character. The Greek deities, those gods which they worship, were no models for imitation. Some of them scarcely have been the objects of reverence, since they, being men, were endowed with the same weaknesses and passions which you and I suffer. Religion itself was mechanical and external. In the Greek philosophy, it did not touch upon the conscience, nor did it awaken a sense of morality. As to the future life, they believed in immortality, but it had very little practical consequence upon their lives. You and I know that there is a life after this one, and that this life <coughs> leads to the next. We are given this life to prepare for the next. Everything we do in this life has very much practical consequence on the life to come. Perhaps they did not believe in a remunerator, a God who punishes the evil, Worsh, uh, gives glory to the good, because there was a God for every sort of vice imaginable. We must remember the words of Plato. Virtue is not self-repression for the sake of duty, but a kind of health, a beauty, and a good habit of the soul, while vice is a disease and deformity of sickness or the sickness of the soul. Plato is correct, but he lacks much. He sees virtue as some passive faculty or facility, rather, but Aristotle brings it a little more closer to the Catholic sense in his educational treatise called Politics, when he says, what we have to aim at is the happiness and the practice of virtue. Merely to know the good it does not constitute virtue. This knowledge 
must issue into practice. The goodness of the intellect must be combined with the goodness of action. Once again, Aristotle, given as a good answer, is inadequate, for he is merely concerned with natural virtue, not virtue which is elevated by supernatural to the supernatural by the grace of Almighty God. The world, dear faithful, revolves around another kind of education. This education is compelling, it is encompassing all, and it is perfecting. This education is the education of the Christian school, of the Catholic Church. The advent of Christianity is the most important epic in the history of mankind. Not only does the Christian conception of life differ radically from the pagans, but also Christian teaching imparts a new sort of knowledge and lays down new principles of action. Most of all, it gives, supplies, the effectual means of making ideals actual, of carrying its precepts, precepts into practice. Concerning the care given to children, Deuteronomy quotes one of the very first quotes, quotes in the 11th chapter, verse 19, teach your children. One of the first books of the Bible instructs the parents of the all-important duty of educating your children. The supreme teacher is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the exemplar. He is the standard whereby all teachers are to pattern themselves. Of himself and his mission, Christ declared, I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth in me may not remain in darkness. And again in the Gospel of St. John he says, For this was I born, and for this I came into the world, that I should give testimony of, to the truth. Christ taught, therefore as one having authority, and he insisted that his hearers should believe the truths which he taught even though these might seem hard sayings. We recall what happened when the Jews, being instructed on the Blessed Sacrament, put their hands over their ears and said, these are hard sayings, who can stand them? They walked away. They lost any faith which Almighty God was trying to give to them. Christ taught especially by his actions. And thus we have the beautiful axiom, knowledge gets full value only when it issues into action. Find its best exemplification in Christ's dealings with his disciples. He began to do and to teach. Where do we find the chief truths which we are to believe? Your children can give you that answer if you do not remember. We find the chief truths which we are to believe through the Catholic Church, through which Christ speaks in the Apostles' Creed. Christ's purpose for coming, for becoming man, was to save a fallen nation, a fallen people. He was to do this by his death on the cross. In order to facilitate his redemption, he established a church whose mission was identical with his own. As the Father hath sent me, I also send you. St. John records those words of our Lord. And again, he that heareth you heareth me, says St. Luke, or records St. Luke of our Lord's words. He founded a church to carry on his work, 
to spread his doctrine or the spread of his doctrine was not entrusted to books, to schools of philosophy, to governments of the world, but to an organization that spoke in his name and with his authority. With this divine command in mind, the glorious Council of Trent reminded bishops and priests of their duty to establish in their dioceses and parishes schools for the education of the youth. Reason teaches us that if bishops and priests have the duty, the responsibility, the obligation of building such institutions, the faithful have the obligation of helping with these and of using these. Custom teaches us often that in missionary countries, bishops and priests would first build schools, then they would build churches, then they would build rectories and convents. They first built the school. Custom teaches us the reason for this. The church, a tabernacle for Christ, the child, a tabernacle for Christ, a friend of God being a friend of children. They realized that the building of a tabernacle in the hearts and the souls of these little ones was more important and in accord with the divine will than the building of great cathedrals. One soul is worth more than any church in the world. The soul, that is, that has Christ in it. The provincial councils of Baltimore were amongst the first councils of the Catholic hierarchy in the Republic of America. Their purpose, the purpose of these councils, was to unite in common discipline the Catholic faithful of the vast new territory, which was being settled very rapidly. The provincial councils of Baltimore were ten in number, and they were convened between the years 1829 in 1869. These councils were had approximately every three years. Let us dive into the decrees of the provincial councils of Baltimore. Even though the first seven councils of Baltimore were provincial councils, it is important to remember that as in the practical effect, these were plenary councils. What do I mean by that? I mean because the diocese and provinces had not been established except for the one centered around Baltimore, which Father Kelly alluded to earlier today, that the Bishop of Baltimore, practically speaking, had very much authority and jurisdiction throughout the whole republic until three other provinces were formed a little later. The very first council reviewed the decrees of Bishop Carroll's diocesan synod, and they ratified them. It dealt with many sacramental questions, and the question of Catholic schools. The very first Council of Baltimore had many decrees. Be before me I have ten listed. I'm not going to go into all ten. I'm going to zero in on those which deal with Catholic education. Since, to quote from the 34th decree of this first council, since it is evident that many of the young, the children of Catholic parents, especially the poor, have been exposed and are still exposed in many places of this province to great danger of the loss of faith or the corruption of morals. 
on account of the lack of such teachers as could safely be entrusted with such a great office we judge it absolutely necessary that schools should be established in which the young may be taught the principles of the faith and morality while being instructed in letters I myself as Mr. Mullen said, I'm from Kentucky, it's part of the Protestant belt. There really is very little moral authority to correct errors in non-Catholic religions and non-Catholic churches. They do not have the authority, no one can claim to be the head of this church or the head of that church and therefore you must do this, this and this as the Pope can, as the councils of the church. The second council dealt with the education of the American Indian and also the repatriati repatriation of the former slaves. The third dealt with property and funds and things. I'm not going to get into that. The fourth is of interest to us here for it sets guidelines for those who found it necessary to attend public schools. The Catholics were not to use Protestant versions of the Bible and they were not to partake in the singing of sectarian hymns. They were also to attempt the priest were also to attempt and the parents that non-catholic religion be not introduced into the classroom before the 1900s less than one percent of catholics attended excuse me less than one percent of the populace attended catholic schools before the 1900s the fourth council is of interest to us here the fifth council rather it dealt with the problems of laymen delivering orations in church teaching in church of clandestine marriages and the use of money the seventh defined the immaculate conception we'll skip the rest of these it's going to be a short talk today while the ecclesiastical provinces of Baltimore comprised of the whole territory of the American Republic the provincial councils remember that uh, the plenary councils will be over the provincial councils. The provincial councils held in that city sufficed for church government of the country. When, however, several ecclesiastical provinces had been formed, plenary councils became necessary for the fostering of common discipline in the ritual, in sacramental affairs, matrimonial affairs. The seventh provincial council of Baltimore requested the Holy See, the Holy Father, to sanction the holding of a plenary synod. The petition was granted, and the Pope appointed Archbishop Kenrick of Baltimore as apostolic delegate to convene and preside over the councils. The very first plenary council was opened on May 9, 1852. Its sessions were attended by six archbishops, all of America, I believe, 35 suffragan bishops, and the following orders. I'll just read the orders once. Many of these orders return for every session, for every council. The Augustinians, the Dominicans, the Benedictines, the Franciscans, the Jesuits, the Redemptorists, the Vincentians, and the Sulpicians. All of these were there. All of these were in America, thank God. The last session was held on May 20th, and the decrees were as follows. There are approximately 25 decrees I have recorded here. I will be reading you a few of them. The second decree enacted the enactments of the first six provincial councils, which I mentioned earlier, were to be accepted throughout the entire Republic of America. The eighth decree demanded that a censor of books be appointed in every diocese. 
the 12th said that pastors themselves should teach Christian doctrine to the young and to the ignorant, not only to entrust it to others, but the priests themselves should become involved in the schools, should take an interest and a guiding influence in the schools. The 14th decree declared an ecclesiastical seminary should be erected in each province. The 18th decreed bishops should endeavor to prevent civil governments from coercing soldiers to attend religious services contrary to their conscience. And the 20th decree, a society for the propagation of the faith is to be established here in the Republic of America. The second plenary council of Baltimore was presided over by Archbishop Spalding of Baltimore as a delegate apostolic. It was opened on the 7th of October and lasted until the 21st in the year 1886. A great celebrity in his day greater than Buchanan a great celebrity was amongst the auditors of the last solemn session, President Andrew Johnson. It has been said that this Council of Baltimore was the largest conciliary assemblage to date since the Council of Trent. <coughs> Speaks well of the American hierarchy. The decrees of this council are divided into 14. Once again, don't worry, I've only put two on the agenda here. <laughs> Concerning the education, remember, the Civil War had just ended. The council recognized that education had suffered much from the previous years of fighting in the Civil War. And they also correctly realized that the best way to overcome the evils of the day, there are plenty of evils today, the best way to overcome the evils of the day of a war-torn republic was to revitalize the educational facilities. The ninth decree concerning the education of the youth, teachers belonging to religious congregations should be employed when possible in our schools. Schools should be erected in every parish. When necessity dictates for the bishop, for the bishop to permit children to attend the public schools, Catechism classes should be instituted in the churches. The bishops not only were satisfied with high school education, they also deemed it necessary to start industrial schools or reformatories. They are to be found, founded in especially large cities. And it is an express desire of this council to form a university here in the Republic of America. And that, that university was attended by none other than Father Kelly. It became known as the Catholic University. In a decree on books and newspapers, the council warns parents, strongly gives you cautions, to be on guard and to protect your children from bad books. This was over 140 years ago, from bad books. The bishops desire that textbooks in Catholic schools and colleges should be purged of everything contrary to the faith. Remember, the educational system of this country was in its infancy during this council, perhaps 50 years old. And they had to use many books from non-Catholic sources, many books which were not as solicitous concerning doctrine as you and I must be. Also emanating from this province was the decree, and I quote it, Parents who neglect to give this necessary Christian training and instruction to their children or who permit them to go to schools 
in which the ruin of their soul is inevitable, or finally who send them to public schools without sufficient cause and without taking the necessary precautions to render the danger of perversion remote, and do so while there is a good and well-equipped Catholic school in the place, or the parents have the means to send them elsewhere to be educated, that such parents, if obstinate, cannot be absolved. This is evident from the moral teaching of the church." End quote. See, the church is very serious about education. She realized that the future of the country and the future of the church, humanly speaking, depends upon your children, depends upon the education you pass down to them, that you inculcate in them. The third plenary council of Baltimore was begun on November the 9th and lasted until December 7th. They lasted merely a month in the year 1884. This council once again was divided into 12 titles, which are subsequently divided into chapters. We're here concerned with the 6th and the 9th, 6th uh, and 7th uh, chapters. During these years, it was the practice in some dioceses to exclude from the sacraments communion, confession, baptism, marriages, those who sent their children to public schools. Why? Why is it so bad? Because you do have to realize that the public schools, and I went there 12 years, the public schools have divorced themselves from Almighty God. They have made themselves, especially here in America with the last few years of legislation and things, they've made themselves incapable of teaching anything referring back to the very basic principle of life, back to Almighty God. The Episcopal Commission, established to standardize educational practices, came up with the following conclusion concerning the sending of children to public schools. It's quite logical. To shut religion out of the school and to keep it for home and church is logically to train up a generation of children that will consider religion good for home and church, but not for the practical business of real life. You can readily see today the fruits of such dilution of Catholic practices in the many who claim to be Catholic in the public life who are personally against abortion or this or that, but will not let religion and their conscience, formed by religion, stand in the way of their duty to their public. We, I believe, had a Catholic president who, before his oath, swore not to let the church stand in the way of his being president of the United States. He has the attitude that will be given to our children when we teach them that religion is fine for home and for church, but not in public. People like to use the quote from scripture, go into yourselves and pray. That doesn't mean you can't pray in public. It doesn't mean that we do not have the obligation of praying in public. We do. We are social creatures. Therefore, the 109th decree of the council reads as follows. We not only exhort Catholic parents with paternal love, but we also command them with all the authority in our power to procure for their beloved offspring given to them by God reborn to Christ in baptism and destined for heaven a truly Christian and Catholic education and therefore to send them to parochial schools." End quote. Maybe it's beneficial to point out here that the church is not condemning homeschooling. 
the very first school of your child is the home. The very first place that they are to learn. What the church is condemning here is sending children as lambs into an environment filled with ravaging wolves. Scripture records godliness is profitable to all things. Fear of God and piety is absolutely necessary for the successful education of the children. How can the children come by this if they are educated in schools which say there is no God? Concerning the sixth decree of this council, youth, excuse me, concerning the education of Catholic youth, pastors are obliged of absolute necessity to establish Catholic parochial schools. It is desirable that these schools be free. <coughs> or if they charge a quarter, I don't think that's going against the spirit. Parents must send their children to schools unless bishops should judge the reason for sending them elsewhere to be sufficient. Every effort must be made to have suitable schools of higher education for Catholic youth. The seventh decree, concerning the consistency of Christian doctrine, a catechism is to be prepared. Remember, there had already been established catechisms for the Indians in many different languages. Uh, as far as I know, there had not been one established in English at this time that uh, was used by all of the Catholic populace in the Republic of America. Objectional writings are to be condemned by Catholics. They should oppose them by orthodox newspapers and books. Be a people of letters, dear faithful. There was a political action committee in Cincinnati that had a private meeting two years ago, I believe two years ago. A certain individual spoke at this meeting and made the simple statement that our politics are top-heavy with a certain religious group, or ethnic group, if you will. That by the next morning, this private meeting was recorded in the city newspaper. And this religious group demanded an apology from the individual who spoke that. If we were as zealous as that religious group was, there would not be the pornography, the abortion, the contraceptives, and everything else which we see today flooding the markets. Adverse to exposing students to the pagan writings of literature, in other words, people opposed to the reading or the permission of bad books to be published, or St. John Chrysostom, St. Ambrose, St. Jerome, St. Augustine, and the litany goes on should also be noted here that the mind of the fathers of the Council of Cincinnati. It has been said, quote, the question of religious education is a test. It's a test of fidelity or infidelity to God. That was Right Reverend Joseph Spalding who said those words. Bishop Spalding. At the same Cincinnati Councils the fathers spoke, it is the judgment of the fathers that all pastors of souls are bound under pain of mortal sin to provide a Catholic school in every parish or congregation subject to them where this can be done. Not all the blame falls upon the faithful if the Catholic schools aren't established. Some of it goes back to the priests who perhaps are, were a little slothful in the establishment of schools. It's hard. They're expensive. You have to get teachers. You have to constantly handle the problems of the kids in the classrooms every day. But it is well worth it. 
Perhaps the greatest effects of the public and non-Catholic schools upon our children is that they will grow up with religious toleration and religious indifference. Perhaps this greatest effect is the most detrimental, thus leading our children to, to forming friendships with non-Catholics and eventually forging mixed marriages. Some mixed marriages work, most do not. A mixed marriage, according to one priest who wrote a book at, at the turn of the century, I forget his name, a mixed marriage is like a span of horses that tug in opposite directions. The Catholic party, if all goes well, if he or she remains faithful to their uh, religion, pulls straight upward or right, whilst the non-Catholic has not the guiding hand of the church, pulls the other way, and the children are in the back of the chariot being tossed to and fro. These decisions are made based upon principles. I will enumerate the six principles which the Catholic Encyclopedia, I believe of 1917, quotes in explaining her course, the course which she has charted in the past and which to all Catholics must unswervingly at present hold to. Intellectual education must not be separated from moral and religious education. To impart knowledge or to develop mental efficiency without the building of moral character is not only contrary to psychological law, which requires that all the faculties should be trained, but it is also fatal. Father Jenkins has often used the, excuse, the uh, expression of creating a monster, but it is also fatal to the individual and to society. The second principle, religion should be an essential part of education. It should not be, be merely something adjunct to instruction in other subjects, but it should be the center by which all the subjects are taught, whether it's English literature or history or science. The third principle is sound moral instruction apart from religious education is impossible. You hear the president, you hear such and such speak of a good, strong America, and then you hear of all these immoral laws being passed. It's a fantasy. It will never happen until America becomes Christian again. True, the child in public schools may uh, be drilled in certain desirable habits, realizing the obligations one to another. But that's as far as it goes. That's as far as it goes. We realize what we owe one to another in justice and things. But we'll that individual trained in the public school will have no concept of his obligations to God from which his obligations to men flow. An education which unites the intellectual, the moral, and the religious elements is the best safeguard for the home. Remember, the family is the cornerstone of, of the country. Since it places on a secure basis the foundation and foundation the various relations which the family implies. The fifth principle, and I'm coming to a close, believe it or not. The fifth principle is far from lessening the need of moral and religious training, the advance in educational methods rather emphasize that need. What do I mean by that? As science progresses, as physics progress, it is more easily able to prove the falsity of evolution. As science, as medicine, as electronics progress, 
it is more it is easier to see the baby in the womb in the hospitals you know how rapidly medicine is progressing ethics are now being done away with we have nurses in the audience here I have talked to some of them personally they have told me of their training in the hospitals and how they were taught the ethics very minutely on how to act, what they can do. With the advance of science and all these operations that it, we're hearing about, it reminds you of Frankenstein. It does. I wouldn't be surprised if they put someone together soon. Um, Catholic parents, the final uh, principle, Catholic parents are bound in conscience to provide for the education of their children, either at home or in schools of the right sort. As the bodily life of the child must be cared for, so must the intellectual and moral life of the child be fostered. It's not easy to be a Catholic in the world, but the church in America has shown herself faithful to the teachings of Holy Mother of the Church and her councils. As mentioned before, by in the year 1900, there was less than 1% of the populace in most states attending Catholic schools. My estimation, I was not able to check this, but my estimation is that by 1940 and 1950, 15% of the, of the populace of the United States was attending Catholic schools. Many non-Catholics were attending Catholic schools also. As Catholics, we, have to pay, we also have to pay our share of taxes for the public school systems. They're under, they, the Catholics, are under, under the double burden uh, but this very hardship has only served to place a clearer light on Catholics' practical loyalty to the principles on which Catholic education is based. In fact, the whole parochial school movement during the 19th century forms one of the most remarkable chapters in the history of education and in the history of this country. It, it proves on one side that neither loss of the state's cooperation nor lack of material resources can weaken the determination of the Church of Catholics to carry on her educational work. And on the other side, it shows that what faith and devotion on the part of parents, clergy, and teachers can accomplish where the interests of religion are at stake. It was J. Edgar Hoover who in 1944 said that religious training is the best weapon against evil. J. Edgar Hoover also revealed that in Brooklyn, I believe it was during the summer of 1944, with thousands of juveniles in the detention centers of Brooklyn, not one of them went to a Catholic school. It's the power of Catholic education. The first, ca the first public school teacher was a Father John Rivet. It's French, so I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, in 1795, he was appointed by another good man, one praised by Leo XIII, President George Washington. You see, the idea of the founding forefathers was not to divorce God in their idea of separation of church and state, it wasn't to divorce God and totally deny him from the education and from the social life of her citizens.
Let me close with one poem. It's in the back there. Give me a second, please. Excuse me. Uh, the poem is, is called Rough Diamonds. A diamond in the rough is a diamond sure enough. For before it ever sparkles, it is made of diamond stuff. Of course, someone must find it, or it never will be found. And then someone must grind it, or it never will be ground. And when it's found, and when it's ground, and when it's burnished bright, that diamond's everlastingly just flashing out its light. Oh, teacher, disappointed now, don't say I've had enough. That worst boy in your class may be a diamond in the rough. May Almighty God bless you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen.